Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. This podcast is being recorded as part of the 40th Critical Care Congress here in San Diego, California. Our guest today is George A. Sample, MD. He's a senior attending in critical care at Washington Hospital Center in Washington, D.C., and he's an associate clinical professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine. Dr. Sample is a member of the Advocacy Committee and works extensively with coding and billing issues. He is the author of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Coding and Billing uh, book called Coding and Billing for Critical Care, which has just published its fourth edition. Uh, In addition, he contributes regularly to the Critical Connections uh, Coding Corner, and there are a couple of other uh, uh, hats that he wears. He's the CPT advisor, the SCCM advisor for the CPT advisor, and he'll correct me on this, and he's also the vice chair for the Critical Care Work Group, which is a national entity uh, advising payors, and um, we'll go into more detail on all of these issues in a few minutes. Thank you again for being part of the podcast. I know you had a very busy schedule. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, uh, I know you and I were just talking before, and there are so many particular issues, it was uh, very hard for me to figure out where to start. Um, It's obviously not the top priority. We're here to take care of patients. But getting this all right is important to keep our hospitals open, as we've seen recently in New York City. So this is not a trivial issue, uh, and it's very confusing Uh, where you've done the right thing for the patient, you think you've documented that you've done the right thing for the patient, and you're still not sure you're able to get across the finish line and make sure that everything's been documented properly so that your hospital can stay in business. Um, I thought I'd start off by asking you about the most recent major changes, the uh, government taking away the concept of a consult, and this affects uh, my wife's a neurologist, it affects her, I guess it affects a lot of physicians, so maybe we could start there. Uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me, uh, and I recognize the society is uh, has an international reputation for research and education, and uh, I feel passionately about those as well as advocacy, so thanks for having me on this uh, show. Yes, uh, the consultation brouhaha. Uh, for the most part, you can uh, kiss your consultations goodbye. Um, They were a huge problem for Medicare. Um, They did an OIG report, Office of Inspector General, a few years ago. um, The OIG felt that 75% of those consults didn't meet the criteria, and it cost the CMS $1.1 billion uh, for what they considered was sometimes fraudulent, but mostly wrong-level mistakes. So they decided, uh, despite all the education of doctors, um, it wasn't working. So let's do something different. Let's just get rid of it. And um, and that confused me, I mean, at many different levels, because I, from what I understand, and this is both inpatient and outpatient, right? Correct. That, that it's gone. Correct. And it, I guess we as physicians or healthcare providers were not able to communicate to the payors 
what the concept of a consult was. I mean, it, I guess as growing up in it, it, it was obvious to me that there was sort of a primary team and we would ask specialists to see the patient or as an outpatient physician, I'm asking my neurologist or whatever to to render a consultation. But But there must be more to it than that, right? Well, Medicare felt that a consult was the solicitation of an opinion of the specialist. But uh, in fact, the physician was asked to manage the patient in whatever specialty that was, cardiology, for example. Right, right, right. Uh, in Medicare's mind, an opinion was, okay, I'm here at the bedside. I'm going to give their, my advice on what to do about this atrial fibrillation. Call me when you need me again. This is my opinion for what you should be doing. And what Medicare was finding out is the doc would show up at the bedside and said, this is what I'm going to do about the atrial fibrillation, and I'm going to see your patient for the next three, four days to help manage mm -hmm. that. Right. So in Medicare's mind, managing the patient was not a consult. An opinion, opinion was a consult. So it was either uh, a management issue, which is another code besides a consult, or a transfer of care, which is another code besides a consult. So they felt that we were not following the guidelines as they should be, opinion versus management. And, and this happened fairly recently. Has it been a year yet? Well, it, it was in January of last year that they got rid of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, but this has been going on for a good five or six years. Oh, it's, heading towards this? Yes. At uh, the CPT level and the AMA, CMS level, it's always been on the docket to discuss how can we get people to understand what we, CMS, want so that docs aren't continually mismanaging this code. And then to, to bring it to critical care, and, and, and you were discussing where I work at a large large number of intensivists where there's actually a separate team of attendings and fellows that will, it's called our consult service, so we have to change the name of our service, I guess. <laughs> so they will be out, and they will see a patient either in the emergency room or on the floor initially, and we would those would be consults. Mm -hmm. And then when the patients would move into the intensive care units and be managed by the attendings there, that would be where we would do our, our usual time-based billing codes. And I was wondering what, what the recommendations are now with all of that. Well, the first thing you got to remember is that Medicare is the only one, only payer that's gotten rid of it. Okay. The private payers have not. That's going to be a problem for your billing company because they got to figure out which of these companies are paying for consults and which ones aren't. So that's going to be a big headache. Uh, if you still continue to use the consults for the non-Medicare patients. And and um, I read somewhere that they say the others usually follow suit, but is that always the case? Is that going to be the case? I'm here? sure it's going to be the case. Oh, okay. This is just becoming too complicated for payers and billers, uh, the billing companies, for example. So I think in time the consults will go away, and we're going to be left with these initial hospital visits or subsequent hospital visits. Okay. So back to your example. If you're called to the ED to consult on a patient, um, you, uh, rather than trying to look and see which payer it is, you could do the initial hospital visit, one of those three codes. And then when that patient goes back or, or leaves there and goes to the ICU, then there's no issue as to uh, what you did down there because it's no longer that consult code. Uh, the nurse practitioner can tie into your visit down there. Uh, your friends can do the 99291 without difficulty. 
So in a sense, it's going to be a, a little bit easier. If I did an initial initial management code, is that what initial you're hospital visit? Initial hospital visit. I don't. I don't. You've uh, never done it before. Um, so anyway, so you were saying that that the concept in a, in a center, and I would imagine even smaller centers, if you're an intensivist working in a smaller hospital and you're asked to see someone in the emergency room. Um, rather than that being a consult code, how, how would you recommend whether or not to do that as an initial hospital visit versus a 99291, I guess, if you want to talk about that? Well, the, in the initial hospital visit codes are 99221, 222, and 223. Uh, those are, for the most part, stable patients. You view them as the ones that you used to see as consultations. So 221, 222, and 223. Correct. 99221, correct. Okay. And um, the critical care codes take a whole new, uh, are a whole new venue in the sense that those patients are truly critically ill, whereas initial hospital visits usually aren't. There are patients that may be sitting out on the floor uh, in which you've been called to see to render an opinion about whether this patient needs to come in the ICU. Right, right, right. That's exactly right, actually. Yeah. That's when it comes up. And and the other part that confuses me, if I got this wrong, but that it's initial to who? If, if, if my group is seeing it for the first time, but if the patient's been in the hospital for a few days, can you talk about that? That's one of the nice things about this is that um, if you are seeing the patient for the first time, uh, you can build an initial hospital visit. And so this code now is open to every consultant who sees this patient, this 99221 or 22 or 23. Um, and the only caveat is that the physician of record has a modifier. You and I probably won't be physician of records to too many patients, and the modifier is an AI modifier. The doc who admits the patient uh, and also can bill initial hospital visit has to append that modifier. You and I don't. And that's how it separates it out. But if you, Richard, see the patient on Tuesday and then the patient gets better and goes out to the floor, your group is not allowed to use that code anymore. So, so and if or if, as we sometimes do, we see the patient on the floor on Monday, I see the patient on Monday, somebody else in my group sees the patient on Tuesday to see if they're okay and see if they've deteriorated, they have to know that my somebody else in the group saw them the, in that hospitalization and do a subsequent hospital Correct. code? And or critical care. Correct. Or critical care. And the, what are the, the subsequent hospital is? The, co- the yeah. numbers? Yeah. 99231. 99232 and 99233. Okay. And and so it's it's low, medium, and high initial subsequent. It's Co- that sort of the basic idea? Correct. Um, and again, the, the, the issues are, and then what if you, and if somebody sees them multiple times in one day, can they do multiple subsequent hospital visits if the patient w- was okay? but then deteriorated later on, or I guess that might become critical care? Within the same 24-hour period? Mm-hmm. Uh, two answers. One, you cannot use subsequent hospital visit, same patient, same day, same providers. It's just not okay. payable. Uh-huh. You can use a subsequent hospital visit 
when you see the patient, say, in the morning, and then the patient deteriorates in the afternoon and it becomes critically ill. So you can do a 99233 followed by a 99291. I see. That used to not be possible, but with the help of SCCM and the work group, we got CMS to buy into that. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, I guess one of the other uh, questions that, that we were going to talk about is, um, and again, I'm, I'm in a 24-7 group, and there are some significant complexities uh, for a group to recoup enough to pay for itself or even try to pay for itself with 24-7, and part of the complexities are the way the time-based billing is organized in critical care, and if you want to talk about that, that would be great. I, I know where you're going, but I want to add something else, if I may. No problem. No, please. Um, the consult codes were five levels, mm -hmm. and the replacement are three levels. Um, and there is a thought that um, we are going to be losing monies because we've reduced from five to three levels. Not that that should be ever the driving factor. It is never the driving factor as to why we do what we do. But it does bring to light an important topic that I feel strongly about and that we should pay more attention to. We as docs and healthcare providers spend a tremendous amount of time with our families, with the patients, for which we don't get paid. So now, in th this code has been present for a long time, but it's going to take, I think, more relevance. And it's, the co it's what we call the prolonged service codes. And these are time-based codes that allow me to spend time with a family above and beyond what I do with the initial hospital visit, for example, or even the subsequent hospital visit, and I can get paid for it. It's been under the radar for a long time because CMS feels that that code should not be used with any regularity or frequency. Uh, I personally disagree with it. Our group disagrees with it. Uh, the people who wrote the book disagree with it. Because disagree with not using it, you mean? Correct. Oh, okay. Um, uh, this is this time is valuable just to the it's valuable to the family and we should get reimbursed for it so these prolonged service codes I think are going to be more important and we should as practitioners look about how we can use them and use them appropriately in terms of the inpatient setting uh, there are two that get paid there are others that don't get paid but the two that get paid are nine nine three five six and nine nine three five seven and uh you said those are can be affiliated with either the 99221, 222, and 223, either the initial or subsequent hospital visits? These are add-on codes, which means you have to have provided a service to the patient at some other E&M level. For example, the inpatient hospital visit code or the subsequent hospital visit code. And once you have provided that service, then you now can provide this time-based code, the prolonged service code. And these prolonged service codes have thresholds, much like critical care, 30 to 74 minutes for the first one, and then 74 plus 30 plus 30 plus 30. For oh, the so they're, they're analogous to 99291 Absolutely. and 99292? Correct. For E&M codes? For, for the initial and subsequent hospital visits? Correct. Right. Oh. Okay. Well, so that's got to bring so, that bring that home. <laughs> so let me let me give you a mathematical example. Okay, please. Initial hospital visit. 
let's say um, I did initial hospital visit, the minimum time that CMS has accorded that is 70 minutes, okay? As a parenthetical, the 221 is 30 minutes, the 222 is 50 minutes, the 233 is 70 minutes, okay? That's the typical time for that code. And I, you can find that in the CPT book and you can find mm -hmm. it in the coding book. The threshold time, as you mentioned earlier, for the prolonged service code is much like the critical care, 30 minutes in order for you to build that code. So if you add 30 minutes to the 70 minutes for the 223, you have to have spent approximately 100 minutes in, in time to get that code. And that's, you know, over the course of a day and family discussions, that may not be that difficult to, to right, get to. Right, right, right. And so you would use the 299223, which is the initial hospital visit, and if you spent uh, uh, 30 minutes on top of the ex typical time, which is 100 minutes, you could bill 99356. And if you're there for 145 minutes, you can bill the 99356 and 99357. And, and, and again, you those are not to be written down independently. They have to be hooked on to Correct. another code. And you should make sure that your documentation is appropriate because... I think the more we use these, the more it's going to go on the radar screen. And so one of the other, um, well, again, to, to back where we were before, we were just talking about uh, to add more complexity to it is is where there's maybe a group of physicians to provide 24-7 coverage and how the billing can get complex. I think the we also have a large group, and um, we're trying to get around some of the complexities with a computerized billing system having not been successful necessarily uh, I think it's extremely important that the first doc of the day or the first provider of the day when it, particularly when it comes to critical care that they explicitly put in their note the amount of time that they spent with that patient Medicare ha has given us a couple options they want us to do clock time like 930 to 1015 which is fine, uh, but that's not how I practice medicine. I sort of bounce around from patient to patient, go back to my critically ill ones several times throughout the day. So I think it's extremely important that the f first doc of the day put the exact amount of time, whether it's 35 minutes or 52 minutes, whatever it is, but that has to be spelled out. He has to spell out what he did during, those during that period of time, not only what he saw but what he did and then the time that it took to do that. And, and sadly, that's if it's 3 o'clock in the morning, you've got to go back looking through that chart to see how much time that was because if you spent 40 minutes, uh, you want to make sure that you get paid for the 99292. Right. If you only spent 10 minutes, you don't want to put 99292 down to the 50 minutes because that's fraud. And the, and the other things that, that I've seen happen that make this all complicated is a patient getting admitted after midnight the night before and the doctor then is appropriately writing a 99291, then the day doctor, we have to have very explicit, not just clinical sign-out, but billing sign-out, unless you have a computer system, to say these are two that came in after midnight, so they're 99292s. And it, it sounds silly, but th this is part of our sign-out. No, it happens to us all the time. Uh, for example, the, the uh, care may have begun at 11.30 p.m. and finishes at 1 a.m., 
uh, and I don't have any knowledge of when that began unless it's someplace in the note. Right. Um, and rightfully, the doc should bill for 99291 for that day I, b- before I showed up because that's when the services began. Right. But if he began them at 1 a.m., then I can't use 99291. Right. But, un- but under the, origin- uh, the initial, I'm sorry, under the prior example I gave you, if he started at 1130 and finished at 1 and did a 99291, he did it for the preceding day. Right. So I can use 99291 for that other day. Um, one of the other areas that we mentioned before that uh, is an area of confusion is I work on a surgical ICU and uh, also have to cross-cover an open-heart unit. And one of the questions is how much of that initial care has already been paid for as part of the bundle uh, especially for some of these uh, patients after open heart surgery that can be qu- quite ill, um, but then get better quickly. If you could share your thoughts on that, it uh, I do the same thing. Uh, I'm pulmonary critical care trained, and all of my work is post-operative patients. And um, one of the things that we've done locally is we have a good relationship with our care medical director, uh, so they know what we do for a living. We've had him down uh, to visit our ICU, so he knows that uh, these patients are sick and that they have issues different than what the surgeon did for the patient. It's more than just wound care that we're we're presiding over. Uh, And so you have to be careful in the post-operative period that you pick and choose the right diagnostic code. and fortunately, with the help of SCCM and the work group, we have been able to not attach specific diagnostic codes to 99291. So, for example, uh, the surgeon may, uh, the trauma surgeon may have removed the, the guy's spleen, mm-hmm. um, but we're seeing the patient uh, for his ARDS. So that's perfectly okay. That falls well within the realm of what I do for a living and not in the realm of the global package. Uh, SCCM and the work group have also been very successful in getting the phrase post-operative complications uh, as a phrase that uh, stays within the definition of 99291 and says to payers, look, Post-operative complications are part of the critical care services, and if these folks are doing something above and beyond what the surgeon has done, then they need to get paid for it. So as long as you pick the right ICD-9, you wouldn't want to pick for the splenectomy guy necessarily uh, hemorrhagic shock, although that's still a possibility. You just have to make sure your documentation is appropriate. So, I mean, would an example be that the, the like the the post cabbage patient that may have just profound vasodilatory shock from being vasoplegic? I mean, that's what we're managing. We're managing this profound hemodynamic instability, right? Correct. Uh, we have uh, an open heart program, as you do, you know, a few thousand a year, and uh, we face this problem not on a regular basis, but enough that we have to be very careful about how we document in these post-operative patients, and the one you mentioned is a classic example, the ones who come out who are vasoplegic on lots of norepinephrine uh, and getting volume, volume, volume. That's something the surgeon uh, doesn't do. Uh, You have to be careful uh, 
that this is not a transfer of care. That's the other issue. And that's why we have had our discussions with the care medical director. It is not a transfer of care. It's actually us providing a service for the patient uh, at the bequest of the surgeon. Um, we're actually heading towards the end, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about your new book a little bit. Uh, Todd Dorman and I and all of the contributors uh, spent a considerable amount of time uh, revising this. Uh, we have uh, three new chapters, uh, ultrasound, echo, and then the new coding changes for consultation. And the business about the prolonged service is more extensive than I said just a moment ago, so you need to read the book and make sure you're complying. There's about nine principles that go with this code that make it uh, applicable and palatable. Well, Dr. Sample, thank you. That was uh, very painful for me, and it's, it's a very challenging area, but it, it, it's, it's important to try and organize things properly, uh, whether you're in a small group or a large group. These are things that uh, are part of our daily life and, and have to be done properly. We've been speaking with Dr. George A. Sample, He's a senior attending in critical care at Washington Hospital Center, and he's an associate clinical professor of medicine at the George Washington University School of Medicine. He's a, a very actively involved in the Society of Critical Care Medicine, focusing on advocacy, and has helped us make some sense of the changing uh, landscape for documenting and, and billing in critical care. Thank you very much, Dr. Sample. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. SCCM has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. These publications include Current Concepts in Both Adult and Pediatric Critical Care, Coding and Billing for Critical Care, 4th Edition, Therapeutic Hypothermia in the ICU, Critical Care Units, 2nd Edition, and Self-Assessment in Pediatric Multiprofessional Critical Care. For more information on these and other publications, visit SCCM's online store at www.sccm.org store. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.